Hey everyone and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And in this week's episode we have some more details about Plasma 6's release date, which I will spoil right now is in 5 months. And they are still working on a bunch of cool stuff. We have details about the new Ubuntu App Store, which comes with major problems that might or might not be fixed. We have GNOME breaking all, literally every single one extension for GNOME 45, and we have some more performance improvements planned for the Linux kernel, we have some updates to Elementary OS, and we have some privacy-related stuff and the usual gaming news. So, as always, if you want to learn more about any of these topics after the podcast, you've got all the links in the show notes, and if you want to support the show, uh, you also have a bunch of links in the show notes just for that. So, let's begin with Plasma 6, and if you're a KDE user, you will be glad to know that it finally has a release date. Uh, previously, the KDE team had said that it would not release before the end of November 2023, but that wasn't a commitment, that was just don't expect it before then. And that was fine, because when they said that, we were like in July, so August, September, October, November, that would have been like four months. Except now we're at early September and they're announcing that it's going to be released in February 2024. It does look far into the future, but I think personally that it's best to ensure that Plasma 6 is the best version of KDE it can be. They're not making huge moves in terms of how it will look, the features it has, but they have a lot of porting work under their belts, they want to have the best Wayland support they can have, and they probably also want to avoid a repeat of the KDE Plasma 5 situation, where when it released, it was extremely buggy and it took them a lot of versions to actually claw back from these bad first impressions. I think KDE was already pretty stable at the 5.15 mark, but that was a lot of intermediary releases to reach that point. And now with 5.27, it's very stable, it works really well, it still has some quirks, but it's really good. Except a lot of people still think KDE is extremely buggy, which is factually not the case right now. But the first impressions stick, and since KDE has had that image since the days of KDE 4, then KDE 5, they probably don't want to repeat that with KDE Plasma 6, and so they're gonna take all the time they need to make sure that everything is up to code. And I think it's a good thing. Now, they're also progressing on the actual work in Plasma 6, uh, notably switching some of the components the desktop and their apps use uh, to use the Kirigami components, which are basically this sort of, kind of like LibAdvita efforts. I think it dates back, it's older than LibAdvita, and it's mostly been started for responsive apps, so that adaptive apps, so they can work on mobile phones, and on the desktop, but in the end it ended up being a very good framework to build applications, and, to, and so they're slowly moving everything to that, uh, which on one hand will reduce uh, code duplication, and on the other hand will probably also make things more stable and easier to work on, and make KDE apps more unified in terms of how they work and look, so it's a good effort. And they've also merged all the recent work that we already talked about in previous episodes, like the custom reordering of KRunner results, uh, the double-click and tap-to-click being now the default, uh, better icon theme support, sound theme support, and a lot more. Now, the list of currently open issues for Plasma 6 is still going down. Uh, they are at 75 at the time I'm recording this, and only 15 of these are big, 
blocker issues that they have to resolve before they want to publish Plasma 6. And they also have a small backlog of features that they want to include. They've agreed that it needs to be in Plasma 6, but they haven't started working on that yet. So maybe if they're too big, they will not make it into the initial version of Plasma 6. Uh, this includes bringing SDDM into the KDE project list. SDDM being the login manager for KDE, but it's not a KDE project per se, except most of the work into it comes from people that work on KDE generally. And so bringing it as a KDE project would probably be the best move. Uh, they also want to use the accent color slightly to tint uh, the title bars of Windows, the whole header bar, because KDE now sort of themes the title bar and the first toolbar in the same color. So it kind of looks like a header bar, but functionally it's not really one. So they want to tint that whole area with the accent color slightly. And they want to remove some duplicated notification settings. Uh, they also want to split the brightness and the battery widgets. Currently they're fused all in one. There are a few things that they still want to fix. And also the KDE Frameworks version 6 and the KDE Gear compilation, which is basically the, the package of all the KDE apps uh, based on Qt 6 and uh, KDE Frameworks version 6, they will also all see their release in February at the same time as Plasma 6. So there will be a first alpha in November. They'll start with betas and release candidates in December up until January. And they will release the whole thing at the same time as the Plasma 6 desktop. So you can move all at once to the latest apps with all the latest uh, libraries, performance updates, changes. Uh, you, you'll have everything at the same time. Now, personally, I do not have a problem with Plasma 6 being five months away. I think 5.27 is a solid release to stay on if you're using X11. Wayland supports. When I tested it on an AMD integrated GPU, worked really well, but on NVIDIA GPUs, it's an absolute disaster. I've been test driving that on a new laptop because I'm working on a project to just replace my desktop and my laptop with one single computer, which is a super powerful, well, a pretty powerful laptop. Uh, and I'm running Tuxedo OS on it, which has Plasma 5.27. The issue is, uh, Wayland support within NVIDIA GPU and KDE is just absolute broken. It's broken. Let's be honest. It doesn't work. Uh, everything crashes all the time. Performance is terrible. It just doesn't work. Uh, so for now, if you're not using an NVIDIA GPU and Wayland, probably 5.27 is a really good place to be at. If you have an NVIDIA GPU, use X11. It's gonna work better on KDE. On GNOME, there's no issues, but on KDE, it's bad. And yeah, it sucks to have to wait more, like five more months. But if it can help avoiding a repeat of the Plasma 4 is broken, then Plasma 5 is broken situation, and just building a, a really bad first impression from this, having distros largely ignore KDE as their default desktop, I think it's all for the best. Uh, I personally remember at the time where I started using Linux, GNOME was the underdog. Most distros shipped KDE 3.5 because it was very stable, very powerful, very customizable. It looked better. It had better apps, more powerful apps. It was just a better desktop. And when they released KDE 4, basically every distro abandoned KDE as the default desktop because it was a mess. And so they probably don't want to repeat that. And maybe they want to try to bring Plasma as the new default because a lot of people don't really like GNOME, but they also think KDE is broken. And if they have a new release of KDE that's not broken, maybe they're moving back to KDE. 
So five months, not that long if we're gonna have a very solid, strong, stable race. But they better make sure that it's not completely buggy and broken though. Now, Ubuntu 23.10 is right around the corner and it got its new app store, uh, which is going to replace the old fork of GNOME software that they call the Snap Store, but it's just GNOME software with the Snap plugin and an old version of GNOME software at that. It was notoriously, notoriously, sorry, worse than GNOME software in every single possible way. It was not up to date, it was slower, it had terrible performance. It was a bad application. So they're replacing it entirely with something else. Uh, it's a new thing that we already talked about briefly. It's built with Flutter, which is this cross-platform toolkit uh, that Ubuntu decided to back. It's a Google project initially. They are already using it in Ubuntu's new installer. Uh, and it's just called App Center, apparently. And it looks like it's definitely better optimized than the previous Franken-Gnome software that they used. Uh, according to OMG Ubuntu, it's way more responsive, it's using less RAM, it's smoother to navigate, it opens faster, it's just a better experience. And looking at the screenshots, it does look really good. It has a simple UI, it has a nice sidebar with categories, the app pages look nice, you've got big screenshots that you can enlarge to view and see if the app looks like something you might want to use. It also handles all your app updates for snaps. You can see a list of your installed uh, snap applications. You can install, uninstall. It looks like a good application. It does come with one giant drawback, in my opinion. For now, you cannot use it to install anything from the Ubuntu repos. And for an app store, sure, okay, you don't want to install libraries from that. You want to use the command line or you want to use like the Synaptic package manager. There's one app to install applications and there's one other thing to install libraries and, and just general backend stuff. But right now in that new app center, anything that is provided as a dev package, even if it's an app, it doesn't show up. It's virtually exactly like what Elementary OS does with their app center, which is also called app center. You only see Elementary OS apps from Elementary OS remote, right? their Flatpak remote. On Ubuntu, for now, you only see Snap applications from the Ubuntu Snap Store. Apparently, there is a pull request pending to add that feature back into the app to allow users to install dev packages for their applications. So maybe it is just a temporary thing. But first, uh, some Ubuntu developers, or, or I think it's the desktop lead, uh, said that they don't quite see the, the use case of allowing someone to choose either a snap or a dev package for the same app. So even if they do put that in, uh, maybe you will not see the dev packages, for example, for VLC, because it's already available as a snap and they really want you to install the snap. And second, this new app center is based on a community project that does support installing dev packages out of the box. So it really feels intentional to not have their package support in the app. And just because there's a pull request doesn't mean that it's gonna be merged in or it's gonna be accepted or anything will, will be added back. So for now, in its current state, it doesn't support their packages. Of course, it also doesn't support Flatpak. It probably will never support Flatpak because Ubuntu does not want Flatpak, they want snaps. Uh, so even if you wanted to add that, you could do that in previous Ubuntu's. Uh, you could add the Flatpak plugin, uh, although that might have already installed GNOME software, but it's going to be the same situation there. 
if you want to have Flatpaks and Snaps on Ubuntu, you'll have two separate graphical app store. You'll have something like GNOME software for Flatpaks, and you'll have the Ubuntu App Center for Snaps. And the GNOME software app will also give you access to all the devs in your repos, by the way. So I'm not sure how I feel about these things. I really truly hope that they will add support back for installing apps as their packages. Uh, because pushing snaps like this, cutting users off from the repos, is in my opinion a pretty big mistake. It was a mistake in elementary OS, admittedly a bigger one in elementary OS because their, their application remote really lacks a lot of application categories. You don't have LibreOffice in there, you don't have any web browser in there, which means that out of the box, the user doesn't have an office suite and doesn't have a web browser that they want to use or that they can install unless they manually add FlatHub themselves or use the command line. It's a terrible experience for users. Ubuntu won't have that same problem because they have a lot of applications packaged as snaps. The Snap Store might actually have more apps uh, than FlatHub. The issue is a lot of these snaps are not official. They're maintained by the Ubuntu Snap team. Uh, they are not packaged by the original developers, and generally snaps have worse performance than flat packs or than their packages. So a lot of people would prefer installing this as their packages. And also there are a lot of applications in the Ubuntu repos that aren't in the snap store at all. And so not having access to these would be a very, very big mistake. So I truly hope that yes, they do plan to add support back for Debian packages in their app store, because if they don't, they might as well stop packaging apps as Debian packages and just stop maintaining those repos, save themselves the trouble. It's not useful if you're not going to provide a simple way for your users to install them. You can use the command line, sure, but if you're using Ubuntu, you probably want something simple and graphical uh, as your desktop. And so, yeah, forcing people to use the command line might as well not be there at all. Now let's talk about GNOME, and specifically GNOME 45. It will be released this month, in September. I think it's in about two weeks. It's probably on the 20th or something. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's coming soon. But it does look like it's going to be a solid release, but it also does look like it has one major drawback for a lot of GNOME users, which is that it's going to break every single extension. And it's not like the meme, like, oh yeah, don't install extensions because GNOME always breaks them it's really, they're going to truly break every single one extension, and that's on purpose. Uh, because basically, GNOME uses GNOME Shell, and GNOME Shell uses JavaScript. It uses the GJS uh, implementation of JavaScript. Uh, so basically, it's a web technology to render your desktop. And it's not been a bad choice. It took them a while to bring it to a suitable performance level, but these days it's very optimized, it's very fast, and it makes it pretty easy to modify, because a lot of people have an easier time modifying things with JavaScript than they would have if they had to write C or C++ code uh, and applets. So it's been an easy thing for extension. The problem is uh, now GNOME is moving to a new way to import JavaScript code as an extension to modify the GNOME shell. Uh, they are moving to the standard JavaScript modules, which have been described as a standard uh, in ECMA script for a long while. I think it's it was in 2015 or 2016. So it, it's an old standard, but they're finally moving to it. And so extension developers will need to rewrite parts of their extensions or they will just not work at all in GNOME. Now, to their credit, the GNOME team released a porting guide about a week ago uh, to explain the new syntax that has to be used. And it doesn't look like a huge amount of work 
to me, as someone who can read JavaScript and basically understand how it works, I couldn't write a full extension myself, but I can understand the code. It doesn't look like an enormous amount of work, but as always, some extensions will be more affected than others, especially the ones that modify the shell the most and maybe rely on weird mechanisms that won't work all that well with the new module or architecture. So it's gonna be some work. And to add on top of that, developers will also have to maintain two different versions of their extensions. Uh, there's gonna have to be one for GNOME 44 and earlier, which uses the older JavaScript code import way, and another one for GNOME 45 using the new uh, ESM. And they will have to upload, the developers, the app developers will have to upload two versions of their extensions on the GNOME extensions portal. You could say, well, they could not care, they could just provide the new one for GNOME 45 and forget about the old one. Except not every distro moves to the latest version of GNOME in a timely manner. Uh, if you use Debian 12, you're stuck on GNOME, I think it's 43. If you use an Ubuntu LTS, you might still be on GNOME 42. Even if you use Arch, you generally don't get the latest version of GNOME until two or three months after its release. And a lot of other distributions don't get it in a very timely manner at all. So if you want to keep supporting your extension, to apply bug fixes, to add new features, and you want all potential GNOME users to have access to your extension, you are going to have to maintain two different versions and backport all the changes and all the new features and all the fixes to the older version as well as to the new one. That's a lot of extra work for GNOME extension developers. Usually, when GNOME breaks something, uh, you can pretty much fix it, and it also fixes it for the older version of GNOME. Uh, but this time, no, you're gonna have to maintain two different versions, and that kinda sucks. It's a big bummer. Like I said, the porting, to me at least, doesn't look extremely difficult. But you will have to do some extra work for something like two or three years, until the LTS versions that use older than GNOME 45 versions, until these die off and are no longer supported and are replaced uh, with a new one, you will have a big burden in terms of development if, at least, you want to support everyone. You could also just say, you know what, if you're not using GNOME 45, you're not getting any new features or bug fixes, the extension for GNOME 44 and under will stay like this, you will not receive anything new. But yeah, you might be leaving a lot of users long behind you before they actually get a distro that supports your newer version of extension. So yeah, it kind of sucks. And now it's time to tell you about this episode's uh, sponsor. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Thunderbird. And you probably all know about it. It's your open source, free of charge, email, calendar, contacts, tasks, RSS feeds, and, and chat client. Uh, it's free of charge. It's available for virtually every single Linux distro, for macOS, for Windows. You can run it anywhere. They're also working on an Android client. And if you used it in the past, you might be thinking that it's pretty much an old app, but they got a major release with a major redesign very recently, and it is well worth a try. Uh, to be perfectly clear, I didn't use Thunderbird before. I started using it with their new release, and it's been absolutely blowing my mind. You can customize it whatever you want, however you want. You can add any button to the header bar. You can change the density of the interface. You can move to a list view or a cards view for email. You can reorganize things, display certain panels or not. You can have a menu bar or no menu bar. It's just very powerful. You can stick to the old Thunderbird version, uh, the, the old Thunderbird interface if you prefer, 
But if you want to experiment the new, what they call supernova look, I really encourage you to do so. It looks really amazing. It makes the app a lot more usable, a lot more modern. It integrates way more into modern Linux desktops. And I can't recommend it enough. So thanks Thunderbird for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And if you want to download Thunderbird and learn more about this new update, you'll find a link in the show notes just for that. Okay, now let's go back to the Linux drivers and performance updates. And as with every single week, it looks like uh, Linux kernel developers are going all in and improving things a lot. Uh, First, we have some updates to the Intel Arc GPU drivers for Linux. The latest patches should improve Vulkan performance for all Intel Arc users, which is probably like three people on Linux. Uh, But still, it's a nice boost. Uh, Not all games or or use cases will receive a big boost, but the most important ones will be Dota 2, Strange Brigades, Borderlands 3, or Formula 1 22. And some of them receive really sizable performance updates with these patches, which will make it into Mesa 23.3. So they should land pretty soon for everyone to use. Intel is also working on a new Intel XE graphics driver. Uh, XE being their relatively recent uh, brand of integrated GPUs. Uh, They are not like the HD something anymore, it's Intel XE graphics. And so they have a new driver for that to stop using the older Intel i915 drivers. It's the new Intel XE driver. It might not make it into the Linux kernel 6.6 cycle. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But when it does, it will definitely bring much better performance for these recent integrated GPUs by basically dropping all the old cruft uh, that the older drivers had because they've been around for a long, long while. So at least laptops and even desktops with integrated GPUs should be a lot faster once this lands. Now, in the kernel uh, 6.6, we also have some planned updates to the XPad driver, which, if you don't know, is the driver that runs uh, all Xbox 360, Xbox One, Xbox Series controllers, and a lot of third-party models as well that basically mimic an Xbox controller. And so this new release will improve support specifically for these third-party controllers to make them work more like a 360 pad, better detect their buttons, the rumble, the feedback, and stuff like that. Now, as per performance improvements that we can expect in the future, we have some more optimizations for AMD CPUs, specifically CPUs that don't have access to ERMS, which, as I understand it, is a feature that allows to move memory around in the kernel more efficiently. Some AMD CPUs don't have access to this. Even recent CPUs, some Epic, for example, uh, CPUs, don't really have access to these set of instructions, uh, while Intel has added that since, I think, 11th or 10th gen. Uh, Basically, every single one of their CPUs has that. But AMD CPUs don't all have it. So for CPUs that don't have it, there's a patch plan for the kernel 6.6, which should result in up to 14% faster memory-related operations. So you will get a sizable boost uh, if your AMD CPU doesn't support this. Uh, there's a way to check. Just click the link uh, in the show notes uh, to to look at the details. And uh, Foronix actually has a way for you to check if your CPU supports that. Now, in the kernel 6.6, there will also be some more fixes for the recent P-State driver for AMD CPU, something that landed in the kernel 6.5. And there will also be some fixes for the Intel P-State driver as well. So these both should improve performance, battery life, and fix a few 
potential kernel panics and errors introduced uh, in the previous version. So, as always, when you're using Linux, virtually with every kernel version or, or driver update, you get better performance, more stability, more battery life, and that's not something that can be said of most other operating systems and the kernels that they use. Okay, now this week we also have a round of smaller updates to elementary OS. Uh, it's apparently the last batch of small updates before elementary OS 7.1 drops, hopefully with some bigger changes, maybe a newer kernel version, maybe a rebase on a newer version of Ubuntu, uh, but probably not that. Uh, so in the meantime, uh, what they fixed or updated in this release is uh, the bug reporting app. It's now way easier to report a bug because you can search for a specific category to report an issue against. Uh, they've also made some more progress on the GTK4 port of their video player. If you don't know, Elementary OS uses GTK, but not the GNOME LibetVita platform. And most of their stuff was GTK3. So they are slowly porting everything to GTK4. The video player wasn't ported yet. Uh, the current version that you can still find in Elementary OS is still GTK3, but the GTK4 port is almost complete, and it does come with an updated, flatter look with smoother navigation, uh, and it better saves your position when you're playing a file. The file manager also got a new tab bar uh, based on libhandy, which is one of the components that served as the base uh, for libadvita. It's still available if you want to use it, but it's been superseded by libadvita in GNOME. So there's a new tab bar with smoother drag and drop, better tab operations, uh, an improved right-click menu on the tabs. Uh, and they also fixed a few things about the color tags that you can apply in the Elementary OS file manager. It's one of the few features that you don't really find in other default uh, file managers on various desktops. GNOME and KDE don't have that. But you can color code a file or a folder, either with the name being colored or the background being colored. Uh, and so this is pretty cool to differentiate stuff in your folders or directories. And so these color tags were stored in a database previously, which meant that sometimes you lost this information when, for example, sending a file to the trash and restoring it. Now it will be saved as uh, extended file attributes, which means they will be saved better and easier to find uh, when you're restoring items, for example. The top panel uh, in Elementary OS will also no longer follow the system style sheet that you use. If you're Theming Elementary OS first, you should not because it doesn't really have themes made specifically for them. And since they use their own Granite library on top of GTK, you're probably going to break every Elementary OS app out there. But if you still want to do it, the panel uh, was the main offender in terms of breaking because it's not supposed to be themed. So now it will not follow the system style sheet anymore. It will always stick to its default look, so it won't be broken. And they also fixed the thing in the power indicator. It will no longer report battery life in days. Uh, the biggest unit it will, it will use is hours because when you say one day remaining, it's not precise. Uh, better to say 25 hours remaining if you have a very long battery life uh, for your laptop. So it's small changes all around. Uh, you probably already got all of them if you're an elementary OS user. I am excited to see what they will bring in 7.1. I will admit I am not holding my breath for big sweeping changes to the distro and the experience uh, because, well, it's a relatively minor update, so I'm not expecting giant moves. Uh, not until Elementary OS 8, which will probably be based on Ubuntu 24.04. For now, it's probably going to be smaller changes, maybe the end of the GTK 4 board. But I'm still excited because, well, I still love Elementary OS, even though I don't use it anymore. 
Now, it looks like the European Union will be backing off a bit uh, in their efforts to try and impose a unified messaging standard. Uh, they've been working on this law that defines gatekeepers for various services like video sharing, communications, uh, online ads, uh, app stores, operating systems, and stuff like that. And they're defining gatekeepers uh, with a certain number of financial uh, criteria and also a number of users. But basically what they're trying to do is identify the companies that could limit competition. Uh, the people who say, you know what, we control this market, uh, we control a sizable fraction of this market, and we could block anybody entering. And so these gatekeepers will have some restrictions imposed on them, especially for interoperability, which means that a new uh, competitor in the market will have access to the same tools and will be able to be interoperable with the services that are defined as gatekeepers. Unfortunately, it looks like Apple's iMessage will not be listed as a gatekeeper anymore uh, for the purposes of interoperability, uh, which means that Apple will not be obligated to open up iMessage to work properly, for example, with Android throughout, through the RCS standard. Uh, for now, if you have iMessage, uh, if you're in the US, it's probably just in the US that iMessage is huge. In the EU, not that much. Uh, but if you have iMessage, you can't really use all the native features of it to talk with someone uh, using basically a text message, which leads to this green bubble, blue bubble stuff, which everyone likes to make fun of, but it's actually a real problem used to discriminate against people in certain countries. In France, we don't care. Nobody, nobody really uses that or cares about that. But in, in the US, from what I've read, like there's a real discrimination when you have a green bubble because you don't have iMessage at least in some circles. It's stupid, but it looks like it happens. And so instead of forcing Apple to comply with this, they're investigating first. They're launching an investigation into iMessage's market share in the EU to see if it actually fits the definition of a gatekeeper under their new law. Uh, Apple is still listed as a gatekeeper for a lot of other things, including for iOS, for Safari, for their App Store, and there's also, like in this list, there's also Amazon, Meta, and notably Google, probably the biggest one. Uh, they are listed as a gatekeeper with YouTube, with Google Search, with Chrome, with Android, with Google Ads, with Google Play, Google Maps, and Google Shopping. So they're going to have to make all of this really more open and accessible to potential competitors. Now, the argument for leaving iMessage out is that it's too small in the EU, which it actually is. I... I never met anybody who cares about iMessage. If you don't have it, you don't have it. And no one really uses its advanced features, at least no one in my friends group, even those who have iPhones. And so iMessage does not control the messaging space like it can do in other countries. So the investigation from the EU will last for five months and will determine whether this should be included as what they call a core platform service, so if it should be interoperable or not. And if the EU decided that it does in fact qualify, Apple will have until August 2024 to make it compatible with RCS, which would be really good to make sure that all communications using text message are entirely interoperable. Now, of course, Apple is still affected by a lot of other EU laws, including uh, right to repair laws that will force them to have uh, user serviceable and removable batteries in their iPhones or iPads. Uh, and also the, thank goodness, they will have to move to USB-C law, which, yes, finally, they're going to have to do it. Although, knowing Apple, they will probably do it in a stupid way and use, like, USB 2 speeds on non-pro devices to have another selling point because, well, it's Apple. But I still really hope that iMessage uh, does have to be interoperable with RCS because it would finally 
make for one single standard for advanced text messaging, I could get out of those stupid group conversations on Facebook Messenger that my friends want to keep using and use something that is actually a standard and not a proprietary app from a privacy invasive platform. Although saying that, like if you use iMessage, you're still using a proprietary app from a privacy invasive company. But yeah, at least it would be RCS. It would be an open standard. Like you understand what I mean. And speaking of privacy, we have the latest Google novelty landing in all Chrome browsers, the so-called privacy sandbox. Uh, this is basically Google's attempt at replacing cookies because these third-party cookies are now pretty much useless for ads and for tracking. They're generally blocked by most major browsers. They're really blocked on iOS and on various uh, iOS apps. I'm pretty sure Android also has some mechanisms in place for that. And so, yeah, if you want to keep tracking people and, and putting personalized ads uh, on websites that aren't your own properties, you need a new solution and Google has one. Uh, they will actually disable third-party cookies by default entirely in Chrome in 2024. So their solution is the privacy sandbox. What it does is it stores ad topics. Google will keep track of all the websites you visited and they will sort them into categories. For example, they might say, hey, this guy really likes big SUVs uh, or from in the under so-and-so price range. Or this guy is really into Warhammer miniatures, specifically Space Marines. Or yeah, no, not Space Marines, they suck. Uh, but yeah, this guy is really into computers and alternative phone operating systems or whatever. All of this will happen locally in the browser and will be stored on your device. It will not be sent to Google. And the websites that want to display ads will only have access to the categories you're interested in to personalize their ads based on that. And of course, Google will offer an ad measurement tool to let companies know what ads you clicked on and how well they're performing. It's an interesting shift because it's no longer a cross-platform mechanism. Uh, cookies were universal. Uh, the, it, it was a feature of the web. Uh, it was a feature of like websites. Now it's a feature of the web browser, which means that Chrome supports it. Maybe Chromium has it. Maybe other Chrome-based browsers will implement it as well. But something like Firefox might decide they don't want that and to not offer that as a mechanism, at least from what I understand. And on paper, it is a good change. Instead of being based on purely personal information and on full-on tracking, this kind of stuff is much more toned down and it's limited to your local device, which should make it way easier to block if you don't like it. If you could probably stop the web browser from writing this thing entirely, or you could probably install an extension that blocks websites from reading the contents of this, or, or that doesn't allow websites to show targeted ads at all. But on the other hand, it's a mechanism that is browser dependent, which means that if this becomes the de facto standard for ads, then it gives Google extra control over the ad market because they decide how this feature works. It can reinforce their quasi-monopoly on digital ads if they decide they do not like the way other people want to do ads with cross-site tracking, they can refuse to implement these changes to the system. And also, it won't stop companies like Google, Microsoft, and, and Facebook from collecting first-party data about you with cookies on their own websites. The cookies that are going away are the third-party cookies. So for example, a website that gave permission to Facebook to place a cookie on their website. And so 
Facebook will have access to multiple cookies on multiple websites and track your interests through that. This is what's going away and being replaced by the privacy sandbox. But when you visit Facebook, Facebook can still place a first party cookie and save a ton of information about you in there and reuse that on their other properties. And so giant companies like Google, Facebook and others will still have an enormous advantage. The companies with giant platforms, they will still have a lot of first party data that will make their ad business a lot more interesting. Because why would you want to try and collect your own information using the privacy sandbox when you can just use Google Ads, which has all the information because everyone uses Google. So it just gives Google even more power by replacing a mechanism that they contributed to, to destroying by something that they also have control over. So obviously anything that makes Google more powerful on the internet should be avoided at all costs, logically, uh, no matter how private how they say it is. So I just thought it would be nice to talk about that here because yeah, it's yet another like monopoly invasion thingy from them. Okay, and now we're gonna finish this episode with some more fun stuff, the gaming news. Uh, so first, the Linux market share is still riding high. It's still at 3.18% on the desktop in general at the end of August, which is still a nice upwards trend since June. And on the gaming side, Linux did see a small drop in market share at 1.82%, but it is still higher than macOS, which sits at 1.57%. So it's still way higher than macOS. It's small numbers all around, uh, but they still mean that Linux is gaining in popularity. And they also make Linux the second most popular OS for PC gaming, even if it's far, far away behind Windows. It's still pretty cool because if you're a game developer and you just look at numbers, then you know that making a game for Linux or at least investing some time in making sure that it works well with Proton is more interesting financially for you than trying to port your game to macOS, which is going to require a lot more work and you're probably not going to sell that many copies because most of the macOS install base doesn't have a Mac powerful enough to actually play a game because, yeah, uh, unless you have an M1 Pro or Max or higher, you're not gaming on macOS at all for at least a, a reasonably modern AAA title. So it makes Linux a more appealing target and the more the number grow, uh, the more games uh, we'll see or at least the more support for Proton we'll see as well. Now, in other Steam and Valve and gaming related news, Steam will now show better indicators for game controllers on their store, notably for PlayStation controllers like the DualShock and the DualSense. Uh, when you're looking at a controller icon in a games page, you will now see if the game supports those PlayStation controllers it won't just say it supports controllers, it will say it supports Xbox controllers, PlayStation controllers, or Switch Pro controllers, or whatever, and also how well they do support these controllers. So for example, for PlayStation uh, DualSense, they might tell you that they support the advanced rumble features, or the touchpad, or whatever. Uh, so Valve says that they're seeing a big increase in PC gamers using controllers, with about 27% of people who do use controllers using a PlayStation controller. So it makes sense to, that they would try to improve this. Now, me personally, I will, I prefer the DualSense controller to the Xbox one, although the symmetrical sticks is still a pain point for me. I don't like it, uh, but I prefer the feel in hand, the size, the joysticks, the feeling of the buttons, the triggers. It's all better than the current Xbox series controller for me. But as long as games don't support the PlayStation glyphs in game, 
then I'm not using it. Because if a game tells me to press X, I'm gonna press the X button reflexively. And on the PlayStation, it's not in the same place as on an Xbox controller, which means I'm gonna have a wrong key press for a while until I get used to my brain seeing an X, but me actually pressing a square. So until game devs add assets for both types of controllers, I will stick to the Xbox pad, which always has the correct symbols. Now, we also have some interesting possibilities for future Valve hardware, because recent additions to the Linux kernel 6.6 indicate that Valve is working on adding support for devices codenamed Galileo and Sephiroth. We don't know what these are yet, but they've been added under the Jupyter Devices category, and Jupyter is the codename for SteamOS, so they're probably going to be devices running SteamOS or compatible with SteamOS. And since the current system on a chip uh, in the Steam Deck is codenamed Aerith, which is another Final Fantasy VII character, and that this specific character, spoiler alert, was brutally murdered by Sephiroth, another Final Fantasy character that is the codename for one of those new devices, it is not too unlikely that Sephiroth might actually be a new system on a chip for the Steam Deck, either for a refresh or for a new device entirely. So for now, of course, we don't know, it's all speculation, but what is certain is that Valve has more hardware planned. Whether they are small refreshes, new devices, or an entirely new product, or, or Steam VR something, it still looks like these will run SteamOS, which is really, really cool because that's more Linux gamers in the wild. And finally, we have an update to DXVK, the translation layer for DirectX 9, 10, and 11 into Vulkan, which is basically the backbone of Linux gaming. Uh, this time, it's an update uh, to version 2.3, and it adds some specific optimizations for GameScope, which is the compositor that SteamOS uses, uh, and so it's also what's being used in the Steam Deck. These changes are mainly to better report frame rates in-game. Uh, so to better detect the actual frame rate, it's probably implemented by Valve or for Valve so they can better test the performance of games on the Steam Deck. Probably has something to do with that. There's also some work starting to better support various workarounds for XCSS, which is Intel's upscaling technology comparable to DLSS or AMD's FSR. And there are also some performance improvements for specific games, as always, uh, like Tomb Raider Anniversary, The Sims 2, Total War Troy, Far Cry 2, Fear, Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, Titanfall, and also Elden Ring. So this update, you can already download it, you can replace it manually if you want in your, in your Steam compatibility data folder, but you can also just wait for the next Proton release, which will probably include it, or the next Proton GE release, that will also include it as well. So with that, we're gonna finish this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, if you did, don't hesitate to click one of the links in the show notes to support the show. Don't hesitate to check out our sponsor, Thunderbird. There's also a link to that in the show notes. And if you want more information about any of these topics, all the links I use to write this show are also there. So as always, thank you all for listening. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.